Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Graw Pod. My name is Doug Graw, and I'm back here again with my co-host, Gary Randall. Welcome back, Gary. Thanks, Doug. Appreciate it. So today we're talking about a not very fun topic. It gets a decent amount of attention in the industry publications, as it should, but really no one enjoys talking about it. And that's a phrase called nuclear verdicts. When I say nuclear verdicts, Gary, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? Well, it sounds destructive to me, just the name itself. The result of something bad that happened, and it's probably going to be a bad result for the carrier. Yeah. And sometimes the nuclear verdicts happen in cases where I don't really feel too terribly sorry for the trucking company. Case in point, earlier this year, just a month or two ago, a trucking company down in Florida was hit with a $1 billion, that's billion with a B, dollar verdict in a tragic accident down in Florida. Now, I think $1 billion is absolutely ridiculous for any personal injury claim of any kind, no matter how sad or how tragic. The number is ridiculous, but that trucking company, I think you and I, Gary, we've talked about a little bit offline. That's not a trucking company to feel sorry for. They weren't trying to do the right thing. They were not a good ambassador for the industry by any stretch. No, I think there's certainly a couple different types. The type that you just described where you don't ever want to say someone gets what they deserve, but you've got to make sure that you're doing things the right way and trying to be a good company. Then there's that second nuclear verdict where you've got a company that by all accounts is doing what they're supposed to be doing and accidents happen and all of a sudden the verdict just seems to get out of control. Yeah. The one that always jumps to my mind, I use this example all the time. It's been in a lot of the news publications for quite a few years now because it's a three, four, five-year-old case, something along those lines. And that's the case down in Texas with the $90 million verdict when the truck driver stayed in his lane under the speed limit, never deviated, never swerved, didn't do anything wrong out on the road, even came to a complete stop, controlled stop after the accident. When another pickup truck crossed a divided highway going the opposite direction and ran into the trucking company and the trucking company was liable to the tune of $90 million. Now, there are some little things maybe the trucking company could have done better, but obscene to me that a truck driver obeying all of the relevant laws coming to a controlled stop in his lane and gets hit by somebody else is liable for $90 million. That's the type of nuclear verdict that I think has the whole industry up in arms about what the heck do we do? And it should have us up in arms. That's an instance of someone just looking for deep pockets or what they think is deep pockets, and they're just looking for that. That type of a settlement. I think you're absolutely right. That's the type of situation that should have us all up in arms. So then we have to ask ourselves as an industry and as carriers, what can we do to try to be preventive and to try to do the most we can not to find ourselves in those situations? You're exactly right. And I think there's three things to keep in mind when you're talking about how do we stay out of a nuclear verdict? And we're really going to focus on one of them, not the other two, but quickly to touch on the other two. There's definitely a lot of things that can be done and need to be done after the accident in terms of how you defend the case. The short version of that is invest in your defense. The plaintiff's bar is throwing a lot more money and resources at preparing their cases than the defense usually is to defend their cases. It sounds kind of simple, but the defense is always on the defense. They're never proactive. They're not investing in the defense. They're not investing in a good result enough. There are some that are doing that, and I tip my cap to those that are. But as an industry in general, one short tip is, and we can talk about this maybe in a different episode down the road with some litigating experts and some jury experts, but invest in defense. 
The other thing that we're not going to spend a lot of time on today, but the industry can do, and that is working for reasonable adjustments to litigation rules and to statutes to kind of balance the playing field. In no way, shape, or form do I suggest that trucking companies should have the rules of the game tilted in their favor, nor do I think that trucking companies should not be held responsible for accidents that they cause. They should be. And I think the good trucking companies out there know that and they agree with that. But there's got to be something done to say that this case just is not worth this much money, as tragic and as sad as it is. One little example I'll give is in some states, if your insurance company pays $100 for a procedure, but the hospital's sticker price is $1,000 for the procedure, in some states, the trucking company has to pay the $1,000, even though the insurance company and the injured person were never going to have to pay a thousand dollars. They were only going to have to pay a hundred dollars. It's called phantom damages because there was never really any risk that the person would have to pay that. I can go down that path, maybe a different episode, but point number two is potentially to get involved in responsible reforms against lawsuit abuse. But I think what you and I, Gary, spend a lot of time talking with clients on and want to see more clients do is prevent the accident in the first place. So we're going to talk about what you can do to prevent the accident in the first place. I think that's right. Your first point of companies probably should be spending more money on their defense. That's exactly right. But by spending money on defense, it's not just after the fact. It's the proactive side of a well-rounded safety program. Let's talk about that a little bit, I think, today. Yeah, you're right. Because there are some recipes for a nuclear verdict that you can't control. You can't always control where the accident happens. You can't control how injured a person is. You can't control what profession the person has in their background and so on. There's some things you can't control, but you can control. You can try to influence a lot of other things. We need to focus on controlling what we can control. And I think that comes across in really three different areas. The qualification process. How do we make sure the drivers that we bring on board are good, solid drivers? They're going to do a good job delivering freight safely and legally and on time. Two, what do we do with them when they're here with us to continually coach them and help them get better and help them keep safety at the forefront? And third, how can we make sure not only that we're on top of our DOT compliance, but we can go above and beyond on DOT compliance? Because Gary, I think you can imagine this. Sometimes we need to think a little bit about what is a jury going to think and how are they going to evaluate us? And what is it really that you would say juries want to see from trucking companies when they're involved in a motor vehicle accident? I think that they want to know that the trucking company cares and they want to know that the trucking company has some procedures and some policies in place and that they've gone above and beyond just talking about those things, but they've actually implemented them into their operations. So an example would be, you've got a trucking company that has telematics and the jury can certainly be educated on what telematics is and what type of data that sends to the trucking company. But the jury wants to know is what's the carrier doing with that information. Example, if one of the telematics is unsafe driving events and the company is looking at speeding events, have they defined speeding? Once they see that a driver has been speeding down the road, what are they doing with that information? If you can provide the jury examples of how you consistently manage and go above and beyond managing those types of events, then that creates your safety story. When the jury hears that you've got a good safety story, they will feel like you've gone above and beyond the norm. I think that can put you in a much better position as a carrier. 
I like that a lot. And you bring up a key topic and when it comes to safety and preventing accidents, and that's technology. There are a number of very good technology providers in the industry. And I'm talking about the stuff that you can put on the trucks, whether you're talking about lane departure systems and speed warning systems and cameras instead of mirrors. And there are all sorts of different types of technology you can put on the trucks. There's data and telematics you can get from the trucks to help you prevent accidents. I think juries want to see that you are investing in some technology. I don't think you need to go buy every latest and greatest widget out there, but I do think you need to be up to speed and kind of trying at least to utilize technology, bona fide technology, proven technology to help you get better. Something we run into a lot of times, Gary, is the company is invested in the technology. They're very excited about it. They did a great thing. We're going above and beyond. We bought this technology. We spent a lot of money on it. But then when you go in and say, what are you doing with it? There's some questions. Unfortunately, we see that all too often. The owner takes the time and the expense to purchase the technology, but it really just doesn't get implemented very well within the organization. seems like there's three key things there, that the carrier needs to use what they have whatever that technology is that you've purchased. If you thought enough of it to spend money on it, let's make sure your folks are using it. They've got to set standards around that technology that makes sense, that are logical standards based on where they're at today. And they've got to be consistent with the follow-through on that, with the management. If they can follow those three things when it comes to technology, then they can get a tool which should help them improve their safety story. And it's a cliche, but it's kind of the elephant thing, right? I mean, it's one bite at a time. You invest in this technology and there are great dashboards out there. There are great, like I said, things you can go on the trucks. There's a variety of different tools out there. Happy to talk with anybody about some of the experiences we have with them, but it can be a little bit daunting. You get the dashboard and you get really excited about it, but six months into it and you're like, I don't really know how to use that. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do in there. I got to get my trucks moving anyway. So I'm focused on dispatching and load planning and stuff like that. I'm not focused on getting into that dashboard. I haven't logged in in a week or two. It's tough to get somebody to admit to it, but the data can sometimes show that's the case. I think what clients need to understand is you don't need to worry about trying to use all of the data on day one. Start small. Start with one piece of data that you're going to take out of your safety systems, your telematics, your dashboard, whatever it is. Figure out what you're going to prioritize. Set a standard like you talked about, Gary. In a phrase you use a lot of times, Gary, that I like is make it a need to do, but start small. Yeah, I think that's right. If you have a list of a dozen things that you think you're going to measure and manage, and that's going to help you create a better safety program, that's too many because it's not going to happen. You have to have a manageable list. Safety is extremely important. We wouldn't be talking about it today if it wasn't. But if you look at the daily tasks that your folks have that are working on the floor, safety is part of what they're doing. There's many other tasks that you're holding them accountable for as well. So if you want them to be consistent with it, you've got to give them a manageable amount of measurements that you're holding them responsible for. Those measurements are going to create the tasks that they've got to follow through on each day. That has to be a manageable amount. You'll have much more success going that route than you will trying to take the entire book and dump it on their desk and expect them to be good at everything. And you bring up a good point when you talk about everything that's on their desk. And we see sometimes that trucking companies kind of divide out their work by safety does all the monitoring and they figure out if someone's speeding too much or if someone's doing too many hard breaks. They're in charge of all the messaging and the coaching, and they're kind of the bad cop. 
then operations, they just worry about dispatching the trucks. But I think you and I would agree in our experience, if operations isn't not only just a part, but a driving force in safety, if it's not operationally driven safety, as some of our mentors like to say, I think you're going to be missing out on some good safety performance. We've had the opportunity, the benefit probably of seeing it handled both ways. If you think back to our history with the folks we worked with. What you find is, is that if you are going to manage your safety program as a side, it's not going to be operationally driven. Then the safety program takes on the role of the police officer. One of the terms that we heard probably a year ago, Doug, that we both agreed that we really liked was that you want your safety program to be set up so that the drivers feel like they're being looked after, not over. In that other setup where you've got a safety program that runs separately and they're kind of doing their own thing, it's easy for the drivers to feel like they're being looked over, that they're being critiqued, that everything they do is wrong, that there's this enforcement arm that's going to come out and get them. The contrast to that that we saw when we implemented safety as part of the operation was that it was much easier for the drivers to feel and for the culture to show that they were being looked after. The same person who was giving them the load, the same person that was making sure that the service expectations were being communicated on that load was the same person who was saying, Joe, I want to make sure I see you get home safely tonight after you deliver this thing. So it became a much more coaching situation. It became a much more looking after versus looking over and success followed with that. And I think that message permeates throughout the organization into the driver's organization at home. It's important to keep delivering that message and make sure the whole house feels that way and recognizes that that's your approach. I think one way to get that across, not only to put it through operations, but to focus a little bit less on the technique and a lot more on the ethics. That doesn't mean technique isn't important. There's lots of good technique stuff and there are tricks of the trade, ways to teach people on how they can do things better to be safer. But I think you'll get even further if you talk to people about the ethics of it. Joe, we want to help you get home this weekend. Susie, we want to make sure that you're able to get home safely tonight. We're about the ethics. We're about protecting the people out on the road, our driver, the cars around them, because all those cars around you, they're filled with families too. They're filled with brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and so on. We want to do our part to help everybody get home safely. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think what happens is, is with a good emphasis on the ethics side of your program, that's going to lead your drivers into the use of good technique. And I think a way to make sure your ethics are getting through and permeating your entire culture is with the follow through. It's one thing to say that you have a policy or a program. I'm a little bit lukewarm on how much stuff should be policy versus guidelines. But let's say that you have a policy or set of guidelines that says a driver can't have more than two speeding violations in any rolling 24-month period. That may or may not be a good policy. I'm not going to opine on that. But if you look in your records, your driver's been coached on safety eight times in the past two years. How strong is your policy if this driver continues to get coached and nothing else happens? Are you really demonstrating good safety ethics and a good safety culture if your follow-through doesn't match your stated goals and policies? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You have to think through what you want those policies to be. And then it gets back to what we talked about earlier, just the consistent side of things. You've got to make sure that if your policy says X, you're going to follow that. 
Now, are there ever exceptions to that? Maybe there probably are, but for the most part, you've got to consistently follow what your process is because if you don't, then your process and your procedures really mean nothing. And if you find yourself in front of a jury, it's going to be very hard to defend this great safety program that you have when the plaintiff attorney can cite many examples of where the policy wasn't followed. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one of the ingredients in a nuclear verdict is not following a policy that you set for yourself. You bring up a good point about exceptions. There is a time and a place for exceptions. You do need to be careful with them. And you need to make sure, are you making an exception because you really just don't like the policy? If that's the case, then change the policy. Evaluate it and consider whether or not you change the policy. Or are you making an exception because there's truly extenuating circumstances? For an example, let's say that your qualification guidelines say that you want no felony assaults on the driver's record in the past five years. Well, this guy's was four years and eight months ago. He was 23 at the time. He's 28 now. It was a bar fight. And now he's had good driving record and steady employment ever since then. He paid his price to society. Are you going to make an exception because it was only a couple of months and he's got a good record and all that kind of stuff? That may be, and I'm saying maybe because who knows, but that might be a good reasonable exception. But just saying, well, the policy really should be four years instead of five years and making an exception because of that, that's not a good reason to make an exception. That's right. And the other point that you're making is it's okay to change your policy from time to time. If you've put procedures and policy in place and you've worked with it for a few years and you want to tweak it, go tweak it. There's no rule against that. But once you make that change, be consistent with how you're going to manage it as best you can. Yes. And when you do make these exceptions and change policies, make sure your documentation follows. You don't need to write books but you do need something because nobody's going to remember a year from now why an exception was made or why a policy was changed. So do some amount of documenting. Don't go crazy with exceptions. All I'm saying is in nuanced circumstances, very extenuating circumstances, sometimes they are appropriate. The point I think of what you and I keep coming back to, Gary, is make sure that when you are thinking about safety, that you are going above and beyond First of all, what does the law require? Your DOT compliance stuff, you got to do that, but you need to go above and beyond to make sure that you are bringing in quality drivers and that you are continuing to coach them up and help them improve in safety. And that includes consistently getting rid of the drivers that aren't adhering to your standards. Yeah, that's exactly right. It goes back to that safety story. What's the safety story at your company? Can you stand up in front of a jury and comfortably say, we've got a great safety program and here's why? Can your actions back up your words and that you've got a good story to tell? Yeah, no jury out there, in my opinion, is looking for perfection, expecting perfection out of trucking companies. They understand companies are run by people and people are human and they make mistakes. They get that. What they don't forgive is lack of effort, lack of follow through, lack of investment. So if you have policies, have good policies that are above and beyond, follow through on them consistently, invest in some amount of technology. Again, I'm not saying you got to buy everything under the sun, but invest in good proven technology that will help you be safer and use that technology. Don't have to use every nugget of possible data under the sun because there are troves and troves of it, but make sure you are utilizing some of it and keep building. Okay. You got really good at coaching hard breaks. 
Can you coach speeding? Can you coach lane departure? What else can you do with the safety data that you have to coach? You were coaching three drivers a day. Can you coach five drivers a day? That kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. As we talk through this, you think about different things while the conversation's going on. And one of the thoughts that came into my head as you were just speaking is how important it is to communicate within the organization what you're doing. You think about what's the reason to have an operationally driven safety program. Well, who talks to the drivers more than the operations folks do? Probably no one. So that makes sense to do that. Just as important is to make sure that your program, your expectations, your processes, your procedures, your policies are communicated clearly and are known by the operations people. You need to get to the point where you could call any one of your dispatchers or fleet managers up in front of that jury and they should be able to describe the safety program that you have in place as well as you can as an owner. Unfortunately, we do see that from time to time, carriers have a very good program in place. But when you poll a half a dozen of their folks, you get two or three different answers on what's really involved with that program. So it's a key to make sure you're communicating clearly, make sure that everybody can speak off the same sheet of music. Well said. That communication is vital. If we kind of wrap all this up, we don't want any of our clients, any trucking companies out there to be the next major headline in a nuclear verdict. And when we talk about the prevention side of preventing nuclear verdicts, again, reminder that there are some other things you can do after the cases, as far as investing in your defense and so on. But when we talk about preventing the accident, that good communication of your program, having a good program that goes above and beyond, investing in technology and utilizing that technology, those three things can all go a long way to preventing that nuclear verdict and preventing you from being in the headlines. And before we kind of wrap up and get out of here, Gary, I want to kind of give a quick update on a couple of other headlines in the legal area for trucking. We're recording this on October 8th. That's a Friday, just so people are up to speed. If you haven't seen it already, the AB5 litigation, that's the independent contractor status litigation that's out there going to the Supreme Court. There are two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. One of them involves a company called Cal Carthage that was rejected by the Supreme Court. Not great, obviously, but that doesn't mean that the battle is over by any stretch. There is still one more case remaining, and we'll probably hear sometime in the winter or sometime in the spring of 22 whether or not the court is going to take that case. And the second thing, the last thing related to the Supreme Court and headlines and so on, it doesn't get a lot of publicity, but there is a very significant case that might get heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, and that is C.H. Robinson, I think it's versus Miller, I think is the name of the case. It's C.H. Robinson's fight to make sure to enforce federal preemption laws. The argument being that federal law preempts any state liability, any liability in a motor vehicle accident for brokers. That's obviously huge. If brokers are no longer going to be held responsible, which in my opinion, I don't know that a broker really should be because a broker doesn't move the load. They're just a market participant. They would be off the hook. And that is a significant change and a significant win for the transportation industry. That's a great update, Doug. Thanks for doing that. A lot of things changing and a lot of things happening to pay attention to. We feel good about the fact that we can try to share some information with you, our listening audience and hopefully you feel good about the fact that it helps you with your business. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to the Graw Pod this week. We look forward to our next recording. We'll hope to keep bringing practical advice and practical topics for you, our valued listeners. Thank you, everybody. Be safe.